Hello, everyone. Before we get into this bonus episode, I need to quickly announce that Cruising has merch. We've got sweatshirts, t-shirts, beanies, totes, and more. So some stuff is specifically cruising-themed, but we've also been working on some designs that are just like fun and cute and queer. So check all of that out. Do some holiday shopping at cruisingpod.com slash merch. Now, the main event. Today we have a special Patreon-exclusive treat. What I mean is that normally we keep stuff like this extra raw interview tape on our Patreon for our subscribers there, but we wanted to give everyone a little taste of what they're missing on Patreon, and who better to share with you than my friend and many of yours, Ruth Bory of Brooklyn, New York. So Ruthie is the regular customer from Ginger's in our season one finale episode. Most notably, she comes to Ginger's every night to play pool. She gives people rides home in her van and she owns her own barber shop, Ruthie's Neighborhood Barber. I really hope that in the episode we were able to capture what a kind and special spirit Ruthie is. But if you want to get to know Ruthie even better, you can actually get a haircut from her. I just got my haircut with her and it was an absolute steal, literally under $30. And I got to hang out with Ruthie the whole time. Like she told me all these stories that I would have loved to have known when we were making the Gingers episode. So I'm like so annoyed at myself for not getting that sooner. Stuff like how she got into Buddhism and how she got her first job after leaving home. So if you're in the NYC area and you can afford it and you want to help a queer Black-owned business, please consider going to Ruthie for your next haircut. Her shop has survived 26 years of gentrification in Brooklyn, and she needs our help, the community's help, to survive 26 or so more. But anyway, there's a lot to get to right now. Um, so much of Ruthie's stories didn't even make it into the episode, so I'm excited for you to all hear it. So to reset the scene for a second, this was like an 88-degree summer night, humid in New York, and we had to step outside to get a little quiet because it was so loud in Ginger's, but Ruthie doesn't like to go down the steps to the patio because it's hard on her knees. So we end up right outside the front door of Ginger's where Ruthie has parked her maroon minivan already. That's where she usually parks. And Jen wasn't here yet. So Jen was kind of our in with Ruthie. They've known each other for many years, but she was running late. And um, you'll hear her arrive later. But Rachel and I are standing around Ruthie's passenger door, and that, that's where Ruthie's sitting, and she's eating unsalted saltine crackers. Uh, my name is Ruth Bory, and I've been coming to Ginger's for about now going on 20 years. So how did you first... Meet, did you meet Sheila first and then start coming to Ginger's or Ginger's and then she, you met Sheila? Well, I have a barbershop, right? And uh, at that time, my mother was alive and I couldn't go anywhere, you know, or hang out or anything because I had to take care of her. She was an elderly, you know. And then eventually when she died in 2012, everybody that came to get a haircut, they used to tell me, go to Ginger's, go to Ginger's, go Go to Ginger's, it's nice. Go to Ginger's, it's nice, like that. 
you know. I just looked at them, but I never went, you know, because I had to take care of my mother. So when she died, you know, I was in the shop. I, I lost a lot of friends because I didn't go anywhere. I was just taking care of mommy to the bitter end, you know. And um, I said, wow, they told me to go to Ginger's. They said it's over on Fifth Avenue, like that, but I didn't know exactly where, you know. But then... I don't know, those voices Those voices came, go to Ginger's, go because I felt all alone in my shop. My friends, they left, you know, they stopped talking with me because I didn't go hang out with them. I kept telling them I had to take care of my mother and I can't go out like that. She needs me to take care of her, you know. So then when I finally came over, it was a Sunday. What was it, 2012? I didn't know anybody, you know, I came inside. There was a performance with two gay guys. I introduced myself to them, and I said, I'm Ruthie, you know, first time here. Then I introduced myself to the bartenders, and I, uh, then I sat right there in the front, right there. It was right in the front. And I just watched everybody on a Sunday, and the, the two gay guys were dancing. She was the performer. You know, and they was dancing and whatnot. I was just watching everybody. I, I really didn't know anybody. So as I kept coming, I started meeting more people. Then I went to the back. I saw that there was a pool table. There was the backyard. And I just started, you know, introducing myself. You know, I'm beauty, but I'm not much of a talker. I'm not. Really, I'm not. I'm very quiet. And um, the more I learned about more people... And about Ginger's, that was, you know, the only place that we can go and hang out at. Even though I went to the Cubby Hole, you know, Henrietta's, you know, and all that. But I didn't feel it in Manhattan, you know. But when I started coming here, I never stopped. So what was it that felt different about coming here? It was homey. It was really homey, you know. And I got to know a lot of different people, learned about a lot of different people. You know, the old crowd, the young crowd, you know, and I just kept coming, you know, and I just to myself, I said, I love gingers. And then I met Sheila, you know, the owner. Yeah, so do you remember the first time you met her? I met her right here with her first girlfriend, you know. Then as we kept on going, one day she asked me to work the door for Brooklyn Pride, you know, and I started working the, the door, and ever since then, Every Brooklyn Pride, I worked the door, you know. And, you know, I got to get to get close with Sheila, the owner. She's, been, she's a very nice person. You know, she's kept this bar open for us. You know, somewhere to go for all of us to have a nice time and stuff. She's always been a good person to everyone. Now, the younger ones that are here, I don't know all of them, but I they're beginning to know me, you know, because I come here every day after work, and I just chill. I think I was gay from the age of two years old. We were little, and I lived in the Bronx before we moved to the group. There was a little girl that we had rooms. My mother was, we were poor, you know. She had a little room taking care of two of us, my father in one room and my mother in another room for my guests. They rented, you know what I mean? And she had a little girl too. So the mother and my mother start talking and talking and talking, but she sit the little, the little ones right there on the stoop too. So I had this play guitar, right? And this little girl on the side of me, 
you know, she was little like I was too, you know, and I'm playing whatever the hell I was playing with the, my little guitar. And she was so pretty. You know what I mean? I didn't know how to explain it yet because I didn't talk, <laughs> you know, but I knew that she was pretty. And that whatever the hell I was playing on the damn thing, I was looking at her like to say, damn, she's pretty. <laughs> and we were babies. I don't know. It could have been there. I couldn't understand the feeling that I had as I kept growing, why I felt the way I felt. When I looked in the mirror, I used to sit there and say, why do I feel like this? You know what I mean? And then eventually, this girl that was jealous of a girl that liked me, the girl put a letter in my mother's box and my mother and father got it as I came back from playing basketball. I was about 16 probably. And my mother and father's looking at me when I came in with my basketball and whatnot. I said, what's the matter? Read this like that. And I said, what's this? Back then they called gay people bulldaggers. Okay, we'll call bulldaggers if you were gay. Okay, and um, my father really he said, "Read this, like that." And so I only got to two lines, close to two and a half lines, where it said, "You know, your daughter is messing with my daughter. Tell your daughter, you know, like that." She put the letter in there because she was jealous of the girl that liked me. You know what I mean? So she made it seem like it was a mother thing. You know what I mean? She told my mother and father who I what what I was, you know, just to be spiteful and whatnot. And I looked up at my mother and father and I said, yes, I am. And I'm not changing for nobody. I and my father tried to punch me, you know, but he told me, go somewhere to Queens and do that nasty shit you are like that. I just looked at him, but my mother said, don't you touch my daughter. She grabbed me like that, but he was going to punch me. He was very abusive to us, you know what I mean? So. But your, your mother sounds incredible. She was. She watched over me, even though I told her that I was, and I told her, and I'm not changing for nobody. They took me to the psychiatrist, and I said, I don't know why I'm here, because I'm not going to change. This is the feeling I have, like that. So they told my father, they called him, and they said, your daughter is not going to change like that. You know, that's what they told my father. But I told the psychiatrist, I don't know why I'm here because I'm not changing for nobody like that. I like girls. That's how I, I that's what I felt. And I, I, I don't know where it came from. I didn't know how to explain it yet. But as I got older, I realized when my sister would take me out with her to her straight parties and stuff because she was straight. I didn't look at the guys. I looked at the girls. <laughs> I looked at them. And I used to say to myself, damn, she's pretty. Like that, you know. And then if the guy wanted to dance with me, he said, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. You know, why you don't want to dance? I said, I, I don't feel like it. Do you mind? You know? Do you mind? <laughs> like that, but I'd be watching all the girls. I didn't quite understand the feeling yet. I didn't know how to express it yet. I didn't know what gay mean, meant, you know, until... Finally, I told my mother, I'm leaving, mommy. And I started going to the parties and whatnot, and I saw my type of people. And I said, wow, I feel so comfortable. Why is, what's this? And I kept on moving, going to different places. And wow, I feel even more comfortable, you know, because it was more women than men, you know. There was the queer and the queen guides and stuff like that. At Stonewall, there was a lot of queer and whatnot when I started going over there. 
and stuff and going out to different clubs that they would tell me about that was gay and I would go. And I knew that this was me eventually. It's me. And I was honest. When I started working in the hospital and all the girls were straight and they were talking about their boyfriend, so and so, then they turned around. They all loved me and everything. But as soon as they said, Where's your boyfriend, Ruthie? I said, I don't have a boyfriend. So what? Why? Like that because I like girls. I was honest with myself. So when I said that, with all about everybody that I was friends with in the hospital, when I came back, you know, to work the next day, I noticed that they seemed to be talking about me quietly. And I noticed that there was sort of distance. But only one guy that was gay that they love a lot was noticing it, you know, that they were treating me funny. So he went off on all of them and he said, I don't know why you're all treating Ruthie like that and you're all like me and I'm gay like that right there. And then she turned around and said, Ruthie, come on, let's go have lunch like that. And I looked at him. I didn't even know him that well yet, but he observed what was happening. And then he said, come on, Ruthie, let's me and you have lunch. And I looked at him and I went and had lunch and we became really good friends. And then everybody, after he told them all off at the office, the nurses and stuff, then they all started saying, hi, Ruthie, how you doing? And that, that's because Tommy broke the ice. Right, yeah. And we became good friends. And um, that was like, for, I worked in a hospital for a long time, but now I'm 14, not yeah, 14 years in Kingsbrook Jewish. And then all of a sudden, the... I was cleaning a patient and getting ready to clean another patient and the nurse talked to me in such a manner with disrespect. Hey, hey you. And I have my ID here where she can name me Miss Bory. You know what I mean? Miss Bory, can you come with me? But she wanted to give a shot to one of the patients that needed medicine, the elderly. And I just looked at her when she was saying, hey, hey you, hey you. I went with her. I went into the room where she was going to give the shot to the patient. And I looked around to see if any other aides were taking care of other patients or cleaning them. But there was nobody in the room at that time. She pulled the curtain around. And then I told, turned around and I said, let me tell you one goddamn thing. And don't you ever talk to me like that. You see this ID? You address me as that. Like that. And she did like that. Then I turned around and said, what is it you want me to pass you? Like that. I got, you know, and, I, and she said, uh, pass me that there. <laughs> the next day, after working so many years and working overtime for them, you know, every time they, I go home, I said, Ruthie, can you come in and work overtime for us, please? I would come. I made so much money working overtime. Yes, I did. I was tired, but I went. And sure enough, when I went to work that next day, they floated me to another floor. I wasn't working with the head nurse that I normally work on my floor, you know. And the next thing I knew, that they wanted to talk to me down into the office. You know, so I went down to the office. There's the administrator, there's the supervisor, and there's the head nurse, all three of them sitting there. And I'm by myself sitting. And I said, what's all this about? Like, that? oh, we want to know what you said to Miss Forster the other day. Like that, what I said to her is between her and I. Like that, I said. She said, no, but we need to know because we're going to write you up. I said, after all these years working and coming in back and forward for overtime, you're going to write me up? And I never started a problem with any of y'all? 
like that. And I looked at all of them, the administrator, the supervisor, and the head nurse. I backed my chair up and I said, F you, all of y'all, like that. And they said, where you going, Miss Boyd? Where you going? I said, F y'all. I went and cleaned my locker out and everything and made it nice and neat. And I took all my stuff at, uh, what, what, time, what time was it? At 4.30 in the morning, I was on Flushing Avenue and Carlton, where the Kingsbury Jewish Hospital was, with all my stuff. And I said, did I just leave my 14-year-old job? I was crying also, you know, from the anger that I had from them, you know, doing what they were going to do to me, write me up and all that, you know. I said, did I just leave my job? my pension, my social security, all that. So I went home, woke up again. I said, what do I do now? But I saved a lot of money working overtime. I had a lot of money. And I walked down Flushing Avenue, the stores all on the other side of Albemarle Road, on that side of the, we're on the other side. Just walking all the way down to Flatbush and um, Bergen and Dean. As I was walking, I'm looking in the stores and saying, yeah, what do I do now? And then I see these lady barbers working in this barbershop called Canaps. You know, I looked, but I didn't want them to see me like if I was being a disturbance. So I walked to the side and I just peeked to see how they were <laughs> cutting hair. And I said, damn, those girls can cut. And I love doing that. Because when I was like 17, 18, to pay my $15 rent that I had, I had a nice little studio. And I would tell the guys that I played basketball with, come upstairs, you know, I'll cut your hair for 350 Like that, and they would come up. And I would cut their hair. It was just one way, all off. <laughs> I didn't know nothing else about how to make it style like yours and stuff. I didn't know. I just cut it all off like they were going to the Army. And I shaped them up and whatnot. I said 350 And I ended up paying my $15 rent. You know what I mean? Back then, a studio was like $15. What they want today for a studio is um, unbelievable. You said 17 or 18 when you were doing that? Yeah, I left home at 17. Okay. Yeah, I told my mother. I never had a high school diploma or nothing like that. I didn't get to go to um, you know, school like everybody else did. You know, I did go, but they put me in a, a slow class for 16 years of my life. And I wasn't slow. They made a mistake because I wasn't the type of person. I was born not talking because of my mother breaking her leg in three different places. I was inside of her seven months, and she fell in the snow getting milk for my first sister. And maybe that the drama her falling, they had to rush her to the hospital to get me out of seven months and put me in an incubator and do the operation. They put three, uh, three different pins in her leg. And she wondered why I wasn't. Maybe that was the drama from her falling while I was still inside that caused that shake in me or whatever to not talk. I reached the age of three, I still not talking. Four, I still not talking. Five, I still wasn't talking. You know, and six is when I started talking. The super that used to teach kids a lot of different games and all the kids be waiting for him after he cleans the building so he can teach him these games. He knew lots of games to teach the children in the building that we lived in. So I'd be waiting and whatnot for him to come out and finish cleaning the building. Then he said, come on, kids. He was a Spanish super. So he would say, vamos, come on, like that, you know. And I would run right along with the rest of the kids. He would turn around and say, no, not you, because you're a dummy. 
like that. And I would look at him. I, you know, I didn't talk. I, and I, and then I watch him play and teach the kids. But he would turn around and keep looking at me like if, um, deceive. I, I was angry. I was like a little kid, you know, you know, looking at him because he didn't let me play with the kids. Now he did this three times to me. And I would go upstairs and my mother, you know, mothers know their children. And she would say, what's the matter? Que pasa? I would go like that. And then I would go play with my toy in the room on the floor. But then she would open the door just to look at I would look at her. But I just didn't know how to talk yet, you know. So I used to hear my father and mother argue. And my mother would say, oh, no, you're going to give me the money for my kids. Like that, my mother didn't play, okay? You're gonna give me the money for my kids. My mother would always say, oh no, with her finger up like that. Give me the money, <laughs> in Spanish, you know? And I would hear, oh no, but yet I was still angry inside. So the fourth time, I'm going downstairs and all the kids are waiting for Mr. Mr. Roberts to come downstairs, finish the building so he can teach more. And I'm looking at him and he's making me more angry, but I would hear my mother always saying, oh no, to my father. So he already done made, I think he made me very angry already. You know, I was young, you know? And then as he said, come on kids, come on, I got some new games for you. I would look at him like that and I start to run and he start, I looked at him, you know, and I said, oh no, like that. He turned around, but he had a smile on his face. Then he said, Bente, and he took my hand like that. <laughs> He did that, yes, he did, yeah. Because when I, when he said the last time, the fourth time, he said, oh, puede hablar. That's in Spanish saying, oh, you can talk. And I'm still going like this. Because I thought he wasn't going to grab my hand. He said, come on. That man showed me so many different games and sports that I became a sport player, a basketball player. That's how good. He, the man taught me, I, I love sports and whatnot, but basketball was my main thing. And I played that till the age of 39, we traveled and everything. Would you were playing professionally? No, I wish I would have, because I played, I played. You know, I practiced every day, you know, with, my mother got me sneakers, a basketball, and I said, okay, mommy, I'm going to the park. And I would play with the guys, and the guys would show me more, and whatnot, right there in my neighborhood, you know? And I would practice every day. I loved the game all the way to the age of 39. But the girls started giving up, you know, the team. They said, oh, come on. Then I started going to Harlem where they had the leads in the summer. And I said, yeah, I play basketball, you know, like that. And I would join them. But it wasn't like they knew me. So they really didn't pass the ball to me like they knew their friends. You know what I mean? So then eventually at 39, I sort of started giving up. And then I would watch the girls in the park over here on um, Dean Street, Bergen Street. And they would be playing, you know, I watch them all the time when I'm passing through. And I'd say, go girls, go. <laughs> you know, and just life just kept moving on for me, you know. I managed to make it even though I didn't have a school diploma. I worked factories packing hats, you know, to make it out here. My little $42.00 was a lot of money to me, you know what I mean? <laughs> but I, I did it. So they kept you in they that? Kept, they put me in a CRMD class, special ed, you know? And they never took you out of it? My mother said that I wasn't slow, but they put me in there 
and I watched all the different children in the class very, very slow, but I didn't feel I was slow. You know, I felt very active, but my mother said, please have my child retested again while she's in this class. They had me retested, but back then it was a lot of prejudice going on. Okay, Puerto Ricans, blacks, and whatnot. So they didn't tell my mother if I passed or what, but I think I passed just to put me back in a regular class and whatnot. So I stayed there 16 years of my life. And I got criticized. They talked about us. And as I move on to junior high school, high school, I will hear a lot of them at lunchtime. Look at, look at that slow class. Look at, look, look at them. Look at them. They'd be laughing at us. I would turn around and look at them. I felt like I wanted to jump over the table and whip their ass. <laughs> but, you know, I had to be cool. <laughs> And I just look at them always hearing these different things about how they talked about the people that were slow. But I don't think I was slow. How did you end up leaving home at, at 17? I told mommy, mommy, I'm, I'm leaving home. And you said, you sure you want to go out in that world? I said, yeah, I'm leaving. I want to go like that. I didn't know what life was out there, you know, but I went. I should have stayed in there, but I left my studio. I went, you know, meeting friends more up in Harlem and stuff and going to the clubs and whatnot. You know, I thought that they were friends. I could stay with them and stuff like that. And at the beach, somebody told me, hey, listen, we have a room and stuff in Harlem. You know, I said, you know, I'll rent you a room and stuff. And I said, okay. You know, they let me stay in their room and then they threw me out into the street because I had told them, stop eating my food. You all have your food. You know what I mean? I had my little room and whatnot, but they were eating my food every time I came home. And so, you know, I told them about it, and the girl that owns the apartment, she got all in my face and whatnot. And so, and I said, that's my food. You all have your food. Why are you all eating mine? And whatnot. she got all in my face like that. And my father, he showed me how to box, you know, from young, you know. And she came up in my face, and the next thing I knew is I punched in her face. And she said, get out. Get out of here. I said, I don't have no place to go. You know, why are you throwing me out? So they threw me out, you know, and I was homeless for a while. You know, I can tell you the places that I look at today where I slept my, put my head for green. There's a house that was really nice on the stoop. I um, slept there real quick, but I got up real quick before the people that owned the home would tell me, hey, get up, you know, like that, you know. And I slept in, you know, the Hoyt, Skimmer Hoyt Station, you know, the, that bench that's still there, the benches, I slept there. And then I rode the trains back and forward all the way, the GG train all the way up, all the way back down. And whatnot, I walked the streets, you know. How come you didn't go back to your mom's? Because I was... A smart ass. Yeah, <laughs> the way I said it. You know, and my father, I kept hearing him say when I told him that I was leaving to see what life was all about for me, he said, and don't make that mistake to come back. When he said that to me, that's always stayed in my head. Now, I didn't want to come back because I thought he was going to start with me, you know? I went to different people's houses, you know, like friends that I knew at the club, like the tabletop that we used to go to, the hilltop. 
Y'all didn't know about that yet. Y'all wasn't born yet, but those are the different places that I went to and I knew friends there and whatnot. And I, you know, I would go and visit them and stuff like that. So I would just hang there until it was, until I felt that they were going to start going to sleep or something like that. Hey, I got to go. I got to leave. I got to get home myself. That's how I pretended to act like I was, you know, I had a place to go to. But that's how I made myself comfortable visiting them and sitting with them for a while until it was like eight or nine o'clock and they had to go to work or something. I said, okay, girls, I got to go to work too. I got to go acting like I really didn't, you know. But I, I didn't want to tell them that I was out in the street and stuff. How did you come up with the idea to start cutting people's hair? Like, it made money Daddy used to take me to the barbershop when I was three years old, right? And he would take me with him. I was little, you know, and he'd be talking with all the guys in the barbershop. And Mr. Dorsey, it was the owner of the shop right there on Fulton Street. And he used to play golf, Mr. Darcy with a little boy when nobody came in and he broke a little can, he cut a can where he think he could put, and I used to just watch the ball go to the can. And so I don't know, something just told me to get up and chase the ball, you know, <laughs> I would chase the ball before he even put it in the doggone can. And he'd be laughing, you know, my father's talking with the guy's barbershop talk. I don't know what he was talking about, but you know, I used to chase the ball and he would laugh. Then I would sit down when the guys start coming in to get a haircut and I saw how nice they used to cut and it was just like observing. And I said, and I said something inside, I didn't talk yet, but I, something inside said, nice, how they left, real nice. You know, every time he would take me, I don't know, maybe I think that's what started it. You know, I liked the way the guys left and I couldn't say, wow, you look nice, because I didn't talk. But I did say something inside here and say, Wow, the way they left, you know what I mean? They all look sort of nice leaving from all that hair that they had, you know. You know, and I, I think that's what started it. How did you end up with your own shop eventually? Well, when I left the, those girls that I saw cutting hair, I went inside and asked for a haircut. There was three girls and a guy cutting, you know, and I just watched the way they cut hair on the side of the window. So something told me to go inside and um, get a haircut. Then the word came out, what school did you go to to learn how to cut hair? She said, we didn't go to school to learn how to cut hair. The owner that, you know, owns this, he has three other barbershops. And he teaches you for nine weeks to learn how to cut hair. I said, really? Can you give me his number? So he gave me his number. I went to see Bill. He was gay. You know, and he saw it and we got along very well. You know, the others seemed to be straight, but you know, Bill got along with me real good. So I said, I would like to learn how to cut hair. So he had 20 chairs on Bedford Avenue and Fulton Street. And he would teach for nine weeks everybody that wanted to learn how to cut hair. So he taught me. He taught me everything that he can possibly teach me. And he said that I was going to become an artist in hair. And I looked at him, you crazy? You don't see how nervous I am cutting this person's hair? You teaching me? <laughs> you know, but when I thought about it later on, after I ended up from that shop around the corner, my shop is around the other corner now. And then when I think about my life history, I said, damn, this man around the corner taught me how to cut hair and I have my own barber shop around the corner. And I'm on St. Mark's, 
and Flatbush is right there. And when you walk down the block, that was Canap's Barbershop. In 1996, I was, work, I was working with other barbers that didn't treat me right on Washington and Washington and Bergen. And they used to make me really feel funny, you know, with four barbers and just me. And so I asked the owner that was very nice to me, can you move my chair way to the back? So I don't want to be around these guys here, you know? He said, okay, so he moved my chair all the way there. It ended up where they used to close the shop, all of us at eight o'clock. All the guys that watched me cut hair and whatnot, that they had of customers for years started coming to me. And I told them, don't start no problem with your barbers because you've been going to them for 10, 20 years. Please, I don't want no problem. He said, who's paying? That's what they would tell me. Before I knew it, I ended up taking all the, <laughs> they all started coming to me and whatnot. And then the owner said, here, I'm going to give you the key to lock the barbershop up. So I'd be there till 11. They would leave at 8, you know. But I'd be there till almost 11 o'clock, 11.30, cutting hair. Nice no, because I knew how to cut here behind what Bill showed me, the gay fella in the shop that um I used to work for him, you know, and he showed me everything and he kept on training me. And then I took it on from there. I'm very finicky when it comes with, you know, I work with my hands. I'm also a carpenter also. I build things and it's just something of, I, I love doing things with my hands. And when it comes to hair, I can cut your hair comes to barbering, comes to cutting hair, making stuff like this, I can do all that, you know? What year was it that you then opened your own shop? 1996. When the girls over there were treating me funny, I left and then Bill came to see how the girls were doing in his, sh the other, you know, the third shop. And he said, where's Ruthie? And so they lied about me. That they said I just picked up and left, and I was. They lied and said all that, but I didn't get to see Bill. I didn't know that he lived across the street on St. James, and I had a beautiful loft on Atlantic Avenue. And one day in the snow time, after I left him, I wanted to thank him for showing me everything he showed me, but I left, and I didn't get to see him anymore. So as it was snowing one day, the snow was bad, and I'm going through St. James and Atlantic. I see Bill, and I said, Bill. Bill, he said, Ruthie. And I said, get in the car. So it's a lot of snow. Then he turned around and he said, why did you leave, Ruthie? Why didn't you tell me something? And I said, did I tell you how those girls were treating me, your girls that you were training? They were treating me real bad because I was gay. And they were making me feel real funny. You know what I mean? So I left. Like that, really, Ruthie? And so I told him, listen, I have a shop around the corner where you have a shop on the other side, and he congratulated me, and I wanted to, I got a chance to tell him, thank you so much for teaching me everything that you taught me, because now I'm gonna be opening up my shop around the corner for you. And he said, really, Ruthie? He was really glad to see that. And I told him the truth and what happened, and I got a chance to thank him for teaching me everything he taught me, you know? And I'm still in my shop. Yeah, and my shop is not all that. Right now it's packed up because of the COVID, yeah. and I was getting ready to redo my shop, brand new again. But they said that you couldn't open your shops, you couldn't 
you know, and all that. And I said, what? So how am I? I packed everything. Hi, baby. How you doing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. How you doing, baby? That's hot. Doing? Thank you. Thank good you, to see you. you. How was work? Good. Yeah. Today was it smelled good. good. So how did you two first meet? Right here. Right here. Yeah, but you just started like playing pool together. Yeah, we all play pool. This is the older crowd here. We're the older crowd. Yeah. Going back. Okay. That's that's. But it's not too many older crowds here now, you know. I don't know where they are now, but. So, do you. This is a crazy question, but do you like ever like meet people? Like, do you ever pick up women here? You just hang out. You no. never have? No. You ne never, you've never met someone that you're interested in here? It hasn't happened. I, I don't know, it just hasn't happened. I was with somebody for 14 years, but not from here. And, um,. It broke up. We had two kids and everything, and she messed it up when we got came back from California, and and I just kept moving on. There was five other relationships that I was with, but I didn't know how to break away from the fourteen years, and I messed up five beautiful relationships from not letting go the fourteen years, and they were very nice, but I I blew it. I was born 1947. 1981, I came back here to New York from California. And that's when everything broke up. And yet, how old are your kids now? They, well, she, she took them away. She didn't let me. Um, they were little. We adopted one that was eight months, and the other one was by birth. As they kept getting older, I played with them. I, I, I'm a sport person, so I showed them little games and everything. I played with the kids and everything. And eventually, as they got older and we got back here, I don't know what she told them or whatever, but you know, they came after they were older. They came to the barbershop, the, the one that was eight months, because I played with them when they were little. I showed them so many little games to play and stuff, you know when we were in California, then here, and then the mother just, you know, took them away. And when they grew up, they came looking for me at the barbershop. I was surprised to see the one that we adopted with her little one, <laughs> you know? But they came to see me, and then she got on the phone and called her brother. I'm talking to Ruthie, like that, and he, and for, Ruthie, that's you? The one that I really showed him a lot of little games to play, but he was a grown guy too now. What did you think when, when she walked in? You must have been like... I was surprised and to see the little one. I said, that's you. Her name was Dignity, the one that we adopted. Okay? And when she got older, I, I said, no, that's not you. That's not your little kid. Yeah, Ruthie. It's mine. <laughs> I couldn't believe it, you know? Have you kept no, they didn't call me no more. That's it. That was it. I don't know where they are. You know, I don't know if the, their mother is still alive or anything like that. Because she lived in Fort Greene. You know, so I don't know where they are now. You know, they all grown and part of those kids are big too. Yeah. I bet I'm moving on with my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you live in New York before you moved to California? You lived around here? This is my home. Okay, where yeah. did you grow up? Right there in Brooklyn, Cambridge, and Fulton. 
from the age of two. I was born in the Bronx, then my mother moved to uh, Brooklyn on Cambridge and Fulton, right where the post office is, and that's been my neighborhood ever since. I never left my neighborhood here. Yeah, that's when I ran into the girl that I thought was the alright person. So you moved to be with her? Yeah, I moved. Like she moved down there already because she was in the army. She was in the uh, air force and she she worked with secret communications. And then when she moved to California, I was still in you know New York, and I said, okay, I'll come. So I eventually left my job. You know, I was working for nine years in my, um, the hospital as a nurse's aide. And I left and went to move to California, Rancho Cordova. And then we came back in 81. So your nursing background must have been really helpful when you're taking care of your mom. Also. Yeah, I took well care of her. Yes. How long did you take care of her? All the way to 2012. When did you when did you start? Like when did you move? In 2003, I she had a house and whatnot. I would go visit, and you know, I had a beautiful loft on Atlantic, and nobody wanted to take turns, you know, taking care of mommy. So they watched me lose my place, and no one offered to help. You know, one week. Why don't you stay with mommy? Because you all always go there for Thanksgiving and stay for the week and stuff like that. So why don't you take and leave from work like I did, you know, take care one week, my brother, one week, you know, even though he was married to his wife, he'll stay for a week and take care of mommy and then my sister and then me, taking turns, you know, helping out and stuff like that. But nobody, none of them helped me. I took, it to, I took care to the bitter end and also watched her die and touched her face while she was dead. Nobody helped me. She was awesome. But I took her everywhere. I took her to the casino. She was in the shop every day with me, you know, with the home attendant. I didn't let her go, you know. And then on top of that, she said, I'm giving you this house. This is for you. I said, Mommy, I can't handle no house. I don't want no house. Yes, you're going to take this house, you know, like that. Gave me the house. And then they all claiming that, you know, I, when I sold it, how come you didn't give us some money and so and so? I did, you know, but they wanted more. And I said, I give you what I can give you because none of y'all helped me. Okay, I sold the house, you know. You know, nobody helped me. None of them came to see if, you know, they can give me a break for a week or so so I can go out. Some of the people that knew me that was gay with you when you're coming out, I lost a lot of those friends because I didn't, I had to take care of my mother. Before you were taking care of your mom, were you a bar person? Like, did you like to go to bars before too? Oh, yes. I went to the city. I didn't know about this place here. I went a lot to the city. You know, there was different places that I knew that they're closed now, you know, that I used to go and hang out because now I'm 74, you know, so I... I did have a good time. Henrietta's was then alive. Stonewall was still alive. Cubbyhole, not just yet. But Henrietta's and Stonewall and what happened to them, I was, in that time, I knew about it when they killed, you know, those people and stuff. The Hilltop, Better Days, you know, all the different places that they're closed now. 
and you know, back in my time. Well, when I was young, the age of 18, 19, my, I started hanging out with my friends and they started showing me different places to go and hang out with them. And said, here, try this vodka and orange juice, you know. And I tried it, you know, and I, you know, what it did to me, they didn't know why I was laughing. They gave me a little bit of reefer and I'm laughing and laughing and carrying on. But then after I got sober and whatnot, I said, I don't want this. Y'all, I love y'all. Y'all want to do it, y'all do it. But I didn't, um, I didn't mess with anything. I was just plain and sober, you know, and I had just had a good time, you know. Yeah. Got my soda before I started messing. I don't mess with sugar now, but I used to get my little salsa, either get my ginger ale and, you know, drink with my friends, acting like I had a drink too, you know. <laughs> but I didn't like them pushing that vodka and orange juice and all that stuff because I didn't like the way my head felt. So then since then, you, you didn't touch it? I didn't touch it. I was, you know, hanging out with my friends thinking, well, let me hang with them. Okay, I'll try it. And they went, but my head was off, you know, from then giving me another one and another one. The next day I was, oof, forget it, it was like a hangover. Yeah. I didn't, no more. What is it that you like about coming to bars and like sort of people watching it seems like that's what you do. like just sort of like being in that space like why is that something that you want to do every day oh well because i have nothing else to do unless somebody tell me about another place to go to then i'll go you know but this is a warm place to me you know what i mean it's very warm okay. you know and i meet a lot of different people some may have attitude others have nice attitudes you know that depends but I love gingers. Do you usually play pool in the back? All the time. Yeah. And, and they know I'm basically quiet. She knows I'm, I'm very quiet. Ruth is a, a kind, quiet soul. She got a lot, a lot of years here, a lot of history. How do you normally get back and forth? My car. This right yeah, here? this is my car. I come here, or when I had the other car, then you know, I, I drove in that car. And when I had my bicycle, well, then I came and left the car there. You know what I mean? So what, what neighborhood do you live in? I'm in uh, Park Slope. Okay, so you're close to here. Yeah. And and Sheila was telling us something about you giving people rides home or on yeah. occasion. Yeah. What is that? How often do you do that? That depends on, you know, if somebody need a ride home or something like that. Or how far are they going or how far are you? I'll ask, you know. And I'll take them home. If I have nothing to do, I'll take them home. Nice. Or drop them off at the train station, or you know. Yeah. So you come, you come every day. Every day, after work, you know. But I'm going to the woods tonight. I, you know. Yeah, do you go to the woods every Wednesday? Yeah. We used to go every Wednesday. We're thinking about going tonight too. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I want, I want to go because I always go and sit and find me a chair near the bar. I do not get up. I don't drink. I don't touch anything. I'm just a plain old square B. <laughs> yeah, what are those? Crackers. Rice brown crackers. Yeah, right. Okay, got it. No salt, oh, no nothing. Really tasty. No um, salt. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, wait, what was I going to say? Oh, quickly, so the last thing I want to know is you were saying that you, you don't think that you're that well known around here, but you have to know that so many people know who you are. What, what do you think about that? That you're, I mean, I think people think of you as like the face of Jim Thank you.
And what do I do? I do I ever talk a lot? You know that I don't talk a lot. She knows that. You're a local celebrity. Yeah. But I don't do. say much. No, I don't yeah, show I don't off and all that. I give all my love and hugs to everybody. Exactly. Come on, let's join. Come on, let's have fun and stuff like that. You know, if they're going through something, I, you know, listen and I say, come on, everything's going to be good. Stop it. Get out of that. Let's move forward. Come on. Let's go play some pool. Taking pictures too. You snap all those pictures Yeah, all the time, I do. Right? Yeah. Together. Yeah. That's in another camera. We'll take one tonight, me and you under the sign. Oh, yeah. we have to take pictures. Thank you, you so much. Oh, we love you. Thank you so much. Thanks for sitting out here with the, in the heat. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Cruising. You can find Ruthie's Neighborhood Barbershop at 66 St. Mark's Ave in Brooklyn, New York. And you can find our new cruising merch at cruisingpod.com slash merch. As usual, Cruising is reported and produced by Rachel Carp, Jen McGinnity, and me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman.